0: Is the Unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Clelland. This week I will be talking with Walter Bosley about his remarkable book, Confessions of a Spooky Mind. This short little book is a memoir of sorts describing some of the strange events in his life. He has written a lot of other books too, both fiction and nonfiction including a three-part series titled The Empire of the Wheel, and most recently, The Esoteric Napoleon. Plus, he's done a handful of thrillers in the classic pulp style. In this episode, we talk about a lot more than just his books. We dig into his very strange personal experiences, and how these led to his very strange research. So before we start the interview, there's one thing I need to point out about the audio— at times there's a sort of scratchy sound on Walter's track. It's intermittent and I tried to clean it up in the mixing, but you'll notice it at times. But hopefully it shouldn't be too distracting. I apologize, I did my best to clean it up, but his his content, the information that he's sharing is quite remarkable and I, I feel very strongly that the that the flaw in the audio is insignificant. This conversation was recorded on january eleventh, two thousand and twenty. Please enjoy. Walter, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me.
1: Well, Mike, thanks a lot for uh, having me. I've always enjoyed talking with you about uh, all these strange things that we uh, like to discuss. So I, I look forward to this. Good. And I I had a podcast uh,
0: that I haven't done anything with. It's sitting on my blog. You know, anyone can access it still. And I think we did two or three interviews over the years. Mm-hmm. Here, so first of all, there's two questions, I guess. What do you call your research? And And then the second one is, what would you call yourself? I guess you would call yourself an author, but, you know, what kind of an author?
1: Those are... Really good questions. I have never been asked before. Wow. Um, I, I, I describe my work as very often as just pulling threads that I find that are presented to me, So, uh, and I don't know any other way to word that, because honestly, one book has led to the other. The Disneyland book, Latitude 33, my first nonfiction work back in 2008 is when I released that. Well, it was while following up on that book that I learned about the Cora Stanton mystery, which led to the Empire of the Wheel books. And it was while doing um, experiments in uh, remote viewing during the early stages of uh, my Empire of the Wheel discovery phase, I'll call it. That data for what became the Juan Cabrillo research, the first secret missions book, emerged. And as I um, uh, was pulling threads with Juan Cabrillo's stuff, um, that led me into the, you know, the, some stuff with Richard Francis Burton and that book. And while literally, while I was researching, doing all the uh, research I did for the Burton book, um, the beer's material popped up and I knew that I would want to deal with that eventually. And I did. So all the books are tied together. And yet, as you know, they're kind of, they appear to be so different, you know, on, on the face of them from empire, of the wheel to the secret missions to the, the breakaway civilization thing to shimmering light, which is about Roswell and MK ultra and yet and your father and my dad. And yet there are threads that connect all these books together. Um, so it's hard to answer your question. Very difficult because I, I don't know. Um, on the one hand, I research, um, alternative history hypotheses. On the other hand, I research, um, occult motivated crime with, uh, the the empire of the wheel stuff. Um, I don't know. I think I'll leave it to somebody else to. Well,
0: I think pulling threads is fair. That seems a totally fair thing to call it, pulling threads. And that's my sense is that um, I guess you line them up on the bookshelf, and it would be unfair to say it's one great big long book. And you have a lot of books. I'm like really impressed at what you crank out. Um,
1: yeah, I'm up. I'm up to eleven works of nonfiction, and um, I feel like each one of them is a justified book because I won't commit to a book unless I think that it's justified. Um, None of them are just to put out a book. None of them have been that so far. And I'm knocking on wood.
0: (laughs) So you rattled off a whole bunch of titles. Let me just, if you can give a quick synopsis of the Disneyland book, the latitude 33
1: latitude 33 key to the kingdom um, is my look at an analysis of the uh, esoteric symbolism And um, things to be found at the original Magic Kingdom Park, Disneyland in Anaheim. And it was motivated by a very strange personal experience I had there in 1981, which kind of stuck with me for over 20 years by the time I decided, you know, I need to look into this and write this book. Um, Oh, oh, please,
0: I'm going to interrupt. So I read that book. I love that book. And it was, um, how to say this? You know, some books are, let me just think of the quote so alfred hitchcock said my movies aren't slices of life they are slices of cake which i love and i think that that so i'm going to say your books are really like they're really engaging in a way that pulls me in in particular let me put it that way
1: well and you you've stumbled upon a way to describe my work it's one big cake you know each book is a slice of the same cake or pie you know um, going back to what I said about you know, there's threads that bind it all together. so I kind of like that. I like your description there. Uh, thanks to Alfred Hitchcock,
0: yes, in which his movies are slices of cake because they're they're so charming and sort of delightful, and they don't really match real life in a lot of ways, but they certainly are high entertainment in a way that right I pine for sometimes in the world of computer generated special effects. so mm-hmm. um now, I this I'm just going to back up this was not on my list of questions but you have told the story I'm certain many times can you tell the story about the inspiration of the or the event that happened uh, to you at Disneyland I think it was you were still in high school if I remember correctly
1: Yes yeah I was a senior in high school and on the face of it it seems like it was just a a rather mundane pleasant experience between my friends and I and a nice old gentleman who I struck up a conversation with, um, and, uh, did something nice for, but when you look at the details and, and the things that happened subsequently in the years after that, uh, I realized that it was really significant. And what happened was simply back in the old days and, and people who are, you know, Californians understand this, uh, Disneyland. You know, you could go there on a uh, if you went there on a Wednesday night, like in February. And I think that's when this was. It was a Wednesday night in February of that year. Eighty one. There was no crowd there by six o'clock. I mean, the crowd is gone. It's a weeknight and such. So uh, my friends and I went to Disneyland and it's in the nine o'clock hour. It's evening. And I think they're open to like eleven or midnight or something. So we're riding the carousel and we're going around and I see this old man black suit, white shirt, no tie, snow white hair, kind of close cropped and a, you know, a a nicely uh, cropped beard, you know, not a long beard. And he's standing there watching the carousel go around and he, he looks like he's just simply fascinated. And I see him a couple of passes and then finally we come around and he's not there anymore. So the ride ends, we get off the carousel and we go walking back deeper into the park and there's the old man sitting on a bench near the Matterhorn. And I don't know why I just felt compelled. I struck up a conversation with him, you know, just asked him, Hey, how you enjoying the park? That kind of thing. And it was his first time there. You would have thought that this guy had um, never even heard of Disneyland. He was so amazed Um, just in, in his eyes were wide. and he was, saying, you know, wow, this this place is just really astounding and such. And this was in the days where there were still ticket books. And in our the course of our conversation, we find out that he only had um, two A tickets left, had no more E tickets, which is all the good rides. But we had one of the early passport tickets, which was unlimited use. Now, now when you go to the park, it's all an unlimited use ticket, but back then it wasn't. So... We went and and rode It's a Small World because you could ride that with the A ticket and he hadn't been on that. So we ride It's a Small World with him. And after the ride, you know, the park's going to be open for like another hour and a half. I live in California. We come there all the time. I give the guy my passport ticket. I pin it onto his lapel so that he won't lose it. I explain to him what it is. And I tell him, you know, hey, uh, park's open for another hour and a half. Go have fun. Go see and do and write all the stuff you want. You would have thought I'd given him a pot of gold. He was so grateful, just thanking me profusely. And then off he went. And my friends and I, he went off back into fantasy land. We went off to Tomorrowland. I guess you could say there's symbolism in that. And, you know, I felt good doing something nice for an old man. Right. And on the face of it, that's the end of it. However, it it stuck with me through the years, and I just felt like there was something more there. So, um, in the intervening years, of course, I was experiencing my own very strange, uh, extraordinary phenomenon. And along comes uh, it's 1992. I'm working for the FBI. I'm in Manhattan, and I'm in a bookstore the Coliseum bookstore. I don't know if it's still there. It used to be on Columbus circle. Yeah.
0: I used to go there all the time. 57th street. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I used to walk there from where I worked for the FBI and I saw this book, um, the old straight track and it's about ley line research. And, Oh, I, I neglected to say when we were at Disneyland, this is important. And I, I hate when I overlook the little important details, But when we're at Disneyland back in 81, we're talking to the man. He he said, he told us his name was Alfred. Okay. He said that his name was Alfred. So, this Alfred guy, you know, this stuck with me all those years. So, here it is in 1992, and I'm looking at this book, The Old Straight Track by Alfred Watkins. Right. So, I open the book, and there's a photo of Alfred Watkins, and it just stuns me. Okay. I get goosebumps because I'm looking at a photo. of the man I met at Disneyland in 1981 who said his name was Alfred. I'm looking at it. It's the spitting image of him, the short white hair, the, the beard, the features, everything. The problem is that Alfred Watkins died in 1935.
0: When you met this Alfred, did he have an English accent?
1: I cannot remember his voice. To this day, I cannot remember his voice.
0: <laughs> now, now, so from that came not only the first Disneyland book, but also um, a work of fiction that you wrote called I Will See You in Time. Is that the title?
1: Yes, yes. Well, here, here's the rest of the kicker, though. Later on, as you know, as you've read the book, um, when I would learn about the man who engineered Disneyland. Okay, Uh, C.V. Wood, who was hired from S.R.I., the Stanford Research Institute by the Disneys, which is a whole thing I go into in the book. Uh, The year that I first see the Alfred Watkins book and see his picture and say, this is the man I met at Disneyland, I find out later that 92 was the year that C.V. Wood died. So that's a huge synchronicity that I wasn't even aware of at the time in 92 when I'm in the Coliseum bookstore, I learn about later. And, uh, yeah, the Disneyland book, um, what I was doing was after finishing that book, after publishing it, I wanted to, um, pull threads as I like to say on the ley lines, the three ley lines are that it's more correctly telluric currents okay and i've since changed how i refer to this but the three telluric currents that intersect in disneyland that the carousel used to sit on top of which is all in the book as you know latitude 33 i wanted to follow those telluric currents through southern california to see if i could find any other paranormal you know or strange activity associated with these lines And that led me to looking for ghost stories associated with the energy from the lines because two of them in San Bernardino, because two of them run right through just west of downtown San Bernardino and cross another telluric line that Sachery had identified for me. So I, I wanted to look for any ghost stories or any paranormal activity going on in San Bernardino. Associated where these lines run through, where this energy runs through. And that's how I um, learned about the, the ghost story of Cora Stanton, who reportedly was haunting the mall out here, Inland Center Mall, which has been there since 1967. And I met with a librarian, the librarian Ann Walker, who um, posted this story. And she's the one who told me to look into the Cora Stanton mystery. And that, of course, led to the Empire of the Wheel.
0: So here we have uh, several slices of cake, of the part of the big cake, and they all connect to this one event that happened when you were in high school. And now also, I'm going to say, again, I'm going to talk about my own podcast, which I did years ago. People will ask me, you know, what was your favorite interview you ever did on your own podcast? And I, and if I'm polite, I'm supposed to say, oh, no, I don't have any favorites. They're all equally. And I'm not polite, and I say the absolute favorite interview I ever did was with Sesheri, the fellow you mentioned there. And Sesheri was a dream to interview and he wrote a book called the handprint of atlas as well as some fiction books as my understanding they're not available right now but um he was doing i guess i would call it ley line research She would call it telluric energy research or Mm -hmm. i guess divination almost maybe that might be a better word for what he's actually doing but his book the handprint of atlas was all about these magnetic Lines that encircle the Earth and encircle, let's say, highly charged places on on the planet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's a very um, uh, integral work to his work and to mine. When um, you, you read my Empire of the Wheel books and I talk about the telluric currents or colloquially we call ley lines and latitude thirty three, um, his research into that really helped me and informed me, and we made some. Very interesting discoveries, as you know, and anyone who's read the books know, Um, you know, that book is the first one to propose how the Zodiac killer selected his victims. So far, I, I think I'm the only researcher who presents a connection between all the victims, and I stand by it. I think it's legitimate, and that is because we were able to show according to Sey's research that every single one of the known and suspected and claimed by him zodiac killer attack sites are on telluric currents it's kind of mind-blowing
0: yes and these are the telluric currents that that Sesheri drew on a map for you well before you yes. you like he put the line in the map well before you made the connection oh and, yeah and put in essence the push pins in the lines.
1: Exactly. It was, I had the map and I remember the night distinctly. I was at uh, a cafe that I would spend a lot of time in and I, I had the map with me and I had, I was making research notes and I wondered, I, I had seen an article about the Zodiac killer and um, w- w- I was looking at the Zodiac killer site in Riverside here, which ends up being, you know, presented in the third book. And I thought, well, I wonder. And sure enough, I pulled the map out. I pulled up the data of the, the classic known Zodiac Killer attack sites. And it, it gave me, again, with the goosebumps, I called Sesh that night and said, you're not going to believe what I've just discovered. And it was, you know, boom, boom, boom. Even the uh, couple in um, Gaviota State Beach, uh, the Sherry Joan Bates in Riverside. And again, the important thing to know is these lines weren't identified after I got my idea about the Zodiac Killer. No, no, no. I had the map and all these lines were identified um, before I thought to put the Zodiac Killer data to it. So it's uh, that's and that's just one chapter in the Empire of the Wheelbook.
0: And this is. uh, we'll talk about this more after we come back from our first break. And I want to talk about this, but the reason I wanted to interview, which we haven't touched on at all, is your most recent book, and we will get back to that after this short break. For free Dreamlanders, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and my guest this week is Walter Bosley, and we are talking about his books, most particularly about his nonfiction work, his own, I guess, a little memoir of sorts, Confessions of a Spooky Mind. And that was published just a few months ago, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, November, I think. I got that out in November.
0: Oh, that's very very recently. Yeah. Good. And you're doing something that I, I like. A, a handful of people are putting out these short little books. They're thin. I don't know how many pages this is. This must be about 80 pages or so. And, um, you know, it's a nice little format to tell a certain story. I know of some folks who've had UFO experiences and they're telling it in these short little books like this. You're not wading into a giant, uh, You it's not war and peace, let me <laughs> put it that way. Right. And during reading the book, I have to say that you and I are on similar paths. For instance, like I cannot speak to the absolute accuracy of my own research, right? A lot of it is sort of just presenting ideas and puzzle pieces that seem to click together very nicely. Mm-hmm. And your Empire of the Wheel series is very similar to my Messengers series in that sense. I almost see it as as archetypal truths welling up in my research, and I and I see that in yours too. It's near impossible to speak with any kind of absolute knowing on what I'm putting out there. And I think both of our studies are based on weird synchronicities and also a sort of gut feeling. So I, I just, let me say, I get your research. I really get it at like an intuitive
1: level. Well, um, yeah, I would agree with you on that. Um, Cechari, you know, going back to our good friend Seshari, there, he, um, uh, used to say that I would remote view on the archetypal level. That's one of the reasons why I quit doing it. I was doing it every day for about eight months between September of, uh, 2007 and, and on into, uh, 2008. And then I finally stopped doing it because I wasn't getting, um, the kind of, uh, uh, data that, you know, you go for when you do remote viewing. I wasn't getting, you know, that kind of data that was, you know, so-called useful. Okay. Where, where, where did I leave the keys? Where did I lose that book? You know, I, I was getting this, um, even more symbolic, uh, w- weird stuff. And so, um, it didn't seem practical anymore. And you're right. I, you know, because my personal experiences are in that realm. Um, it's, um, it can be very difficult to communicate and relate to other people. Um, what these experiences are, what they mean and such. That's one of the reasons why I wrote Confessions of a Spooky Mind, because as you know, I really don't discuss personal experiences in my nonfiction. I'm not one of those kind of writers that when I'm writing about, um, you know, historical things or other topics, I feel the need to include myself in there. I know that's a, a style of journalism that got really popular, especially in the last 25 years or so. But I feel like when I'm Talking about things that happened in 1915 to these other people, you know, I just don't want to inject myself in there. However, during the research and investigation phase of that, I was I was just going through synchronicities and personal strange experiences with extraordinary phenomena. I mean, galore. It was just crazy. It was one of the craziest, most intense periods of my life for that stuff. And, um, still, I just didn't feel right putting it into those books because, you know, my nonfiction Empire, of the wheels, secret missions, these books are not about me. Um, so there it was. And, you know, I, I, wanted to, to communicate it and convey it in some way to my readers, but, uh, I just didn't know how to do that. Uh, that's why I ended up writing confessions of a spooky mind.
0: In, in in the book, uh, I'm going to read a quote from the book here. It says, you wrote, As I started learning how to use remote viewing, the most intense period of strangeness in many years, if not my entire life, began. So you're saying something that I've stumbled onto. I don't have never done. Actually, I, I've tried it one time, remote viewing in a public setting. I actually was in a talk given by Russell Targ. And he said, you know, take your notebook and draw the picture of the next interesting slide that I'm going about to present. Just imagine the interesting detail in this next slide and draw it. And I drew this thing, and it looked like a, a gazebo in a town square. And it looked like it was made out of barbed wire, but all the barbed wire was like um, like rose thorns. Does that make sense? They mm-hmm. had that little specific rose thorn shape.
1: Whoa, okay.
0: And then I looked at it, and I said, oh, this doesn't mean anything. And then he showed the next slide. And it was like a a piece of artwork that was sort of gazebo-shaped. It was in a square on the campus of Stanford University. And it was a series of dolphins all swirling around. Can you imagine like metal dolphins? The artist would have had the nose of one dolphin touching the tail of the other dolphin. And they're kind of doing this swirling thing. And their fins all looked like rose thorns, right? The fin the, the Oh, the,
1: right. Okay. Yes, they do.
0: And I drew quite exactly the shape of the park. Mm-hmm. So I said it was a gazebo in a park. It was a piece of artwork in a park. So in essence, I got a pretty darn good hit. Yes. The very first time I ever tried.
1: Yes. And that is something that happens with a lot of people. Um, you you realize, you know, wow, there's something to this. And uh, it it is pretty astounding when you first do it. I was uh, – I chose the three most skeptical people in my life at that time to test this on my ex-girlfriend. She had just become my ex-girlfriend. Who's more skeptical of your stuff than, you know, your ex. Right. And, uh, one of my sisters who's, uh, you know, kind of superstitious and fearful. She's one of these good Lorders and my son, <laughs> you know, cause he's grown up with daddy. You know, dad's talking about the weird stuff. And independently, I, at different times, uh, had them select the target and put it in the envelope and, you know, put the number on it. And they were each shocked at the accuracy of the drawing and the description and what I came up with. Each one of them were, how did you do that? (laughs) I said, uh, I'm not sure how to explain it, but this is the the thing. And that was all within the first few weeks of when I started doing remote viewing. But I, I would say, Mike, that you're one of these... Like myself, one of these people who you already kind of do it in a natural way. Um, you don't really need the protocol.
0: Now you had a career both in the FBI and in the Air Force. Um, I guess Air Force would be investigations.
1: Yes, Office of Special Investigations (OSI).
0: Now, were you was your uh, remote viewing in any way associated with the military remote viewing that we know from from? Uh... Oh, just, I'm trying to think of the name of the book.
1: From, oh, from, from, I know what you're talking about from Project Stargate. And, yes, uh, exactly. Joe McMonigle and all those guys. Yes. And, uh, here's the interesting thing. Indirectly. Uh, yes. And, and here's how. Uh, no, I was no longer, cause this was in 2007. I was called by a stranger and I kind of depict that in my time travel novel, by the way. Um, I'm called by a stranger uh, one morning. Uh, in april of 2007 and we have this three and a half hour conversation about things in general my career and stuff and he tells me that he was navy intelligence and and then he says hey i think you'd be really good at this remote viewing stuff i'd like to teach you how to do this let me send you the training materials so i said uh, okay and um, i had been told about remote viewing by my uncle in 1986 and he described what it was and he said that someday I'd be taught how to do this. But, you know, that was before my FBI time and, and all through FBI, Air Force and, and uh, after who I worked for after that, I was never trained in remote viewing. I got that after that part of my life was over uh, from the stranger who called me. So he sent me the training materials. And essentially it was you'll love this. It was Ed Dames's program which a lot of people it's questionable to them. And, you know, he, he's the famous Dr. Doom and, and McMonagall and the guys that were actually RVers in the program have said, eh, there's no credibility there, but that's the uh, method the guy sent to me. Right. And I had, um, success with it, but I begin to realize that, um, uh, you know, after the fourth step that the rest was superfluous. So, uh, indirectly, Yes, it was because Dames was, you know, an, a, kind of an admin officer with that project, as we know, and um, he had exposure to the way they actually did remote viewing. And that's how he, uh, through extrapolation, came up with his own process of doing this. Right. So, and and of course, it was a guy who was former Navy Intel who trained me in this so it kind of in an indirect way, yeah, and and I have since gone on to become acquainted with Lynn Buchanan, who was, you know, one of uh, McMonagall's colleagues in that original group and have had um, some interesting discussions with him, believe me.
0: And so I've I've uh, I've uh, corresponded with Joe McMonigal, and I did a chapter in my second book that part of the chapter I needed to discuss remote viewing and did and talked about Joe McMonagall and Lynn Buchanan, and both of them have had very, how to say this, overt UFO contact events in their life that certainly imply abduction. And then uh, you can watch there's a YouTube video of Jacques Vallée talking about his work uh, with the remote viewing project back in the early days. And he says straight up in front of an audience that pretty much everyone, I'll say it, he said everyone, he said everyone involved in the military-trained remote viewing project had UFO contact experiences, what we would call close encounters. Jim Mars wrote a book and said the same thing. Everyone had UFO encounters. So, And in my chapter that I mentioned earlier, the fellow had an owl experience, and that's why I was talking with him, but he also mm. had UFO experiences. And this is something that that I had to dig a little deeper to really pick out, but people who are immersed in remote viewing The fellow in this chapter got somewhat obsessed with it. He's not in the military, and he was just doing it on his own. He was having mystical experiences. I contacted Colonel John Alexander, who was part of that original uh, remote viewing program, and asked him, did you recognize that as a pattern, that people doing remote viewing, immersed in remote viewing, did you notice that they were having mystical experiences? And he said, yes. He said we recognized it. He said not everyone, but enough that there was a pattern. And then he said, I, "I'm paraphrasing from memory, and I'll, this will be pretty close." You know, he basically said it gave us pause to use the mystical in a military application. And I never really followed up on that. But he was—he said that in a sort of thoughtful way. Now you are saying the same thing that when you were immersed in remote viewing, you were having the strangest chapter of your life where you were getting hit with synchronicities that led to the book you were working on and then future books.
1: Oh boy, yes. Uh, now, as you've read Confessions of a Spooky Mind, you know that uh, overtly that I'm aware of my very strange journey began I was 16 years old, woke up one morning, a Sunday morning in December of 1979 and everything had changed. And and I continued through the 80s with strange little experiences and through the nineties as, as well, you know, so for years I was having, you know, it was just my life and, um, it it really went into high gear after I had started doing the remote viewing and uh, the things I was getting were leading to things that I literally found physical landmarks and it, it, it just cascaded. It just cascaded um, talk about one thing leading to another. It was every, I didn't even have to pull the threads. I was being pulled along the threads and, um, you know, it, it, it resulted in, you know, multiple books. It resulted directly in, uh, four books, you know, definitely the empire of the world trilogy and that first secret missions book about Juan Cabrillo. But I, 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 I want to make an important distinction, however. I never um, put forth an idea or a book based solely on any kind of psychic hunch or experience or remote viewing. I insist, I do this to myself, I insist upon doing research and finding documented or historical evidence to back up what the remote viewing or what the synchronicities have led me to. So I allow them to give, I allow these things, these esoteric methods to show me leads, show me a path, you know, provide a thread, but I don't just, you know, present it based on that. I, I then look for evidence. And, and the thing that has really amazed me is that, um, I do find it, you know, um, there's a lot of things in my books that are backed up. You know, the the footnotes are in there. It references the historical source, the document that I got it from or the whatever source. But I was led to look at that to begin with because of a synchronicity.
0: And we will talk more about this when we come back from our second and final break. For free Dreamlanders, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am here with my guest, Walter Bosley, talking about his recent book, Confessions of a Spooky Mind. Now, Walter, over the years, I have heard you say in one form or another that you don't think the UFO mystery is all that important. Or maybe it's a better way to say it is that you don't find it all that interesting. And it, am I getting that correct, that you say it's...
1: Uh... Well, No, because it, it's very interesting. It's fascinating. Um, there was a, t- a period where I kind of just got tired of talking about UFOs or being asked about UFOs because people just wanted to talk about the same thing. So I think what it was was um, the, uh, the popular lore, the popular conversations were no longer interesting to me. That's what it was Um, like, like, you know, Roswell being an E.T. incident, which I have not uh, believed for a long time now. Um, You know, it it, it was more of the E.T. hypothesis was what was less interesting to me because there are so many other uh, possible viable explanations. um, But yet don't explain everything. I do think E.T. explains a portion of UFO sightings. Absolutely. I think that.
0: Good. Okay, good. I didn't want to misquote you. But that was my memory. And most of that is coming from Facebook kind of things where I could read the frustration between the lines <laughs> of your post there. So, Yes. Now, all that said, you had a whopper of a UFO sighting. And I would love to hear about
1: that. Uh, it was in December of 2014 that I uh, I have, um, I have two kids, my son and my adopted daughter. And uh, her boyfriend lives here um, with us uh, part of the week, and he was coming in. He's a chef and a restaurant manager, and he was coming in late at night from work. And uh, he comes in the house and he says, "Hey Walter, you got to c- come out here and look at this this thing in the sky." So I'm like, "Ah, oh, okay, you know, it's probably going to be a helicopter or a satellite or something, right?" So I go out there, I look in the sky, and my jaw drops. I run. Back inside the house, I grab my camera and I turn the thing on, and I'm recording this thing. And what is this thing? Okay, um, he said when he got off the freeway, he saw it, which is a, a mile from our house, just to the northwest. He gets off the freeway and he sees this thing as he's turning towards our neighborhood. He sees this thing moving over um, the community in the direction of our neighborhood, and as he's getting closer to home he realizes it stopped over our neighborhood. And as he gets closer to the house, he realizes, oh, my God, it stopped right over our house. So, you know, he gets home. That's when he ran in to get me. And what we're looking at is a this. In some cases, this is classic description, a flat bottom, a domed top. OK, but the dome shape was not so much defined by a a. A, a structure I was looking at. It was more defined by um, the illumination activity that was going on inside, okay. And that was a rotating amber gold illumination, rotating around a central axis, okay. And but and and that illumination was was um, uh, kind of revealing the shape. Over this thing, and it was distinctly dome shaped. And the thing was about—and I'm terrible at this, even though I've been in the Air Force and all that—I wasn't a pilot and everything. Uh, but um, I'm terrible at, at, at you know trying to say how high it was. But uh, what I did was I used a tree, you know, a large tree we have on the property, and I would say that it was about maybe twenty five or thirty feet above the top of that tree, and that tree's about thirty whoa, whoa, whoa. to forty feet high. That's close. Yes, it is very close.
0: Oh, that's so yeah. So you weren't looking at something that was like uh you had to squint your eyes at something way, way, way up in the, <laughs> no, no, in the no, stratosphere.
1: No. no, no, no. We were and and I asked him before I said anything, I said, I told him, describe to me out loud what we are seeing, what you are seeing. Tell me what you are seeing. And he described the physical description so that I could know that we were both seeing the same exact thing. Okay, so I confirmed that Um, this thing is sitting there stationary just right over. okay, right above us. It's not it's not moving. It's not wobbling. It's the only thing that's going on is some type of energy inside is rotating around a central axis. And he said it had been moving. Um, and, and it had stopped there over the house and it, it wasn't moving at all except this internal motion. And I got the camera going and it stayed there for a few more moments and then it started moving again and its movement was not erratic. Its movement was not upward, you know, as it moved forward, it wasn't, you know, it's not like it was being carried by the wind. It was moving, um, with a level attitude, as they say, maintaining its altitude. Very level, um, uh, looked like controlled flight. And as it started to move away from the house, it then began dumping some type of molten liquid substance, just dumping it over the side. And uh, we, we did have a low cloud ceiling that night. So it, as it moved to the southeast, away from our house, um, it eventually disappeared into the mist and then out of our sight. I subsequently went to where, you know, I thought I could find where it had dumped this substance. And what I found um, the next day, kind of in the, uh, walking uh, you know, following the path of where this thing flew, I was finding, oh, it! it, it the next morning on our lawn, I found a black, uh, fluffy charcoal type of burnt uh, substance that al- almost disintegrated in my hand when I picked it up. Or, or, you know, I didn't touch it with my skin, but it was very uh, fragile. Did, did you save it? And as I uh, as, as long as I could, it eventually just kind of, you know, dissipated.
0: Oh, so do you never put it in a plastic bag or anything or?
1: Well, yeah. And it just, it just dissipated into, you know, just looking like, you know, uh, just the remains of a charcoal briquette powder or something. Okay. Um, and, and I don't have the money to run things through labs, so. You know, but as I, the next day, as I walked the path where this thing had gone, I found more of this substance, um, in, in the grass on the sidewalk or whatever, you know, that, that was it. That was the experience. Now, um, here's the thing, the afternoon of the night that this happened of the day this happened, um, there's another thing that I've discovered that I have never written about that i have had some interesting experiences now what this is is um i call it the device it's um it's 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 a a i don't know if you call it a sigil or whatever but it's painted on a uh not concrete but um a blacktop uh, basketball court type of surface okay and i've known about it since 2010 well on the afternoon of the day that this happened that night, an associate and I, OK, my associate who used to live next door to me. So he was living there when this this UFO
0: did. The, did this thing drop any of the the black glowing goo on his home, too, or in his yard, too?
1: Not that I found. OK, not that I found, not that he found either. Um, but uh, that afternoon we had gone out to this place and we had measured Every dimension of this symbol, this thing that is painted on the ground, and I, I'm being purposely vague because it's on uh, a private property, and I don't really want people, you know, going out there, um, going out there to bother the the, the owners of the property. And um, when my kid's boyfriend told me he saw it approaching the neighborhood he said it was coming from a Northwestern direction. We determined that it was coming from a Northwestern direction. Well, the thing I'm talking about is Northwest from the house. So when you look at it from that perspective, we had gone out, my associate and I had gone out. We had measured every line and dimension of this thing that I found in 2010. And then that night, a UFO is moving from that general direction over our neighborhood and stops over the house and then continues on. And, you know, it's dumping this molten stuff. Um, I can't help but correlate those two things. I can't help but suspect, I can't prove anything, but I can't help but suspect that by going out there and, you know, being out at that site and, uh, measuring those dimensions, we had done something we had got the attention of someone or something and this ufo appears over the house later that night so make of it what you will
0: the question i ask as a ufo investigator when, when i talk to people and this is not like in the mufon checklist let me put it that way mm-hmm. the question i ask is what were you doing right before your sighting or what were you doing leading up to your sighting And I say the same thing for powerful synchronicities. And I say the same thing for, let's say, highly charged owl sightings, too. And so you've answered that question. You were looking at the schematic. Now, in your book, you kind of.
1: Well, no, no, no. uh, You said immediately that was in the afternoon. That was in the afternoon that we did the schematic thing.
0: Well, let's say, okay. leading up to that. Yeah.
1: That evening. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I do correlate the two. That evening, right before this appeared, I, I, I remember I was sitting at the computer. I can't recall if I was, you know, um, reading emails or if I was on World of Warcraft or whatever. But, um, uh, yeah, I was just sitting there, you know, when he came in. And, okay. But but leading up to the event. But, but, yes, yes, earlier in the day. Yeah, leading up to the event, we, I did the very, you know, I think, um, a significant act of, you know, being out there at that site.
0: And in the book, you imply that this schematic was sort of an esoteric device that Mm -hmm. involved some sort of occult knowledge. This is in the book. And this seemed to play into the mystery that was unfolding around your Empire of the Wheel book series, the the research you were doing there, correct?
1: Well, it was during the, the investigation on the first book that I stumbled across this thing. Um, it's located at a site that historically the organization is involved with one of the people in book one. So I went out to this location to talk to their archivist to see if, you know, they could give me, um, any, uh, documented insight into this individual. And, um, it was kind of weird when I went out there. Um, the door was open to the office. There was a car there but there was nobody around. It was like one of those movies where you're in a different dimensions, but in the same place, right? You can't see them. They can't see you. (laughs) It was kind of odd. It was in the afternoon. And, and, um, I I was looking around and I just felt compelled. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go take a look out there and just kind of look around. And when I went out there, I, I see this thing painted on the ground. And, um, I, I had had then subsequently some experiences while standing in the middle of this painted schematic. Um, you know, that, that year in 2010. Can you share any of those experiences? Oh, it, well, absolutely. I've talked about it in the past. I quit talking about it because I got, um, to be honest, I, I was on a show and I got seriously, um, the, the skeptics who, who, uh, used to hate me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all have our trolls, um, you know, I just decided, well, to heck with it. I won't talk about it again, but I have talked about it in the past. I was standing in the middle of this thing, and I was looking to the north, and on a hillside, I saw an image of what looked like Athena, um, kind of uh, the, the ancient-looking type of portraiture with the, uh, the round eyes, the helmet, the distinct nose, and um, a straight-on image like she's looking at me, and on her shoulder is the owl, her familiar.
0: Now we're talking. Now we're getting into this stuff now. You're yeah.
1: <laughs> so this image, it wasn't like I saw um, a goddess, you know, like like a woman standing there in a costume with an owl on her shoulder. No, it was like when you um, uh, burn an image on the on a hillside, you know, um, it, it looked like that. It It looked like the image had been burned in the grass on the mountainside that I was looking at.
0: So if someone was there with you, they would have seen
1: it, too, and you could have pointed up to it. I, I don't know. I'm assuming they could have. I'm assuming they could have um, it, if they were standing where I was standing. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And, it, yeah, it was pretty astonishing. Um, And, and there it was. I was looking and
0: at And is it. this, I, look, forgive me for interrupting, but is this like one of those things where you're like looking at the clouds and you turn to your friend and say, that cloud looks a little bit like a teddy bear. Do you see it? And maybe the person does see the teddy bear shape and maybe they don't. Am I reading too much into it or?
1: Oh no, it it was much more distinct. Okay. Got it. I mean, it, it, yeah, it was, it was distinct enough that it really got my attention. Um, so that was my first weird experience with that. And then on another time I went out there, stood in the middle of this thing in the particular spot and three crows or three Ravens. Sorry. They were distinctly Ravens big, um, appeared. And you know how ravens are, they do their thing where they communicate with you. Um, now, remember, I had been having raven experiences, I, as I mentioned, um, starting in uh, December of 2007, you know, seven years before the UFO experience time. And ever since then, I feel like I've, you know, I'm one of those, I feel like I have a little relationship with the Ravens because they come around and they communicate. And, um, so, you know, I've had that experience with them out there at this thing. And then of course the, uh, the UFO that appeared I, I I suspect, um, I hypothesize it's just a suggestion. Again, I can't prove it. Um, something about me going out there and getting the dimensions of the schematic and realizing What it was we were looking at, it seemed like, did that unlock something? Did that communicate something to someone or something? And that's why the UFO appeared that night. Um, I don't know. It seems like that.
0: It sure does. Yeah. And I'm at the point now where I just treat UFOs and owls and synchronicities all as the same thing. So, I mean, they, to me, have the same power Mm -hmm. in essence. So, you could have seen an owl fly over your house that same night. And for me, I would have taken that just as seriously as a totem or a sign as a, uh, as a UFO.
1: Well, um, (laughs) I got to tell you, one of the most um, significant owl experiences I've ever had happened just a few months before the ufo when literally i'm sitting at my uh my my computer sitting there at my desk where i work and i hear this is you know late at night sometime between 10 and midnight i hear a woman scream like you know the the classic bloody murder i mean i hear a woman screaming i jump up and and it sounds like it's like right out in the backyard of my house and uh, the scream moves over uh, it's outside, but it moves. It sounds like it's going up across the top of my house and I'm wondering what the hell is this? So I run out front and I, I grabbed a light. I, you know, I'm a former, former law enforcement. You know, you grab a light, you're running outside. You think something's going on and I don't hear anything at first and then i hear an owl doing its little you know and i'm i'm trying to pinpoint the sound and finally i find it and it's perched at the very tippy tippy top of the tree out on the front edge of my front lawn a big owl i mean this thing was huge it 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 was weird that it was you know perched where it was perched on the tippy top of this thing. But I know their bodies are smaller underneath all those feathers and you know, they can do this, but it just looked really odd in a cool way, a big giant gray owl. And it's looking right at me and I run in the house, get my camera, come back out, start taking video and it's still there and it stays there long enough for me to get video of it sitting there perched on top of the tree and then it spreads its wings so that you know I can get the full view of it spreading its wings. And then it just gently soars away in the same direction that the UFO went a few months later to the southeast from the house, in a southeast direction from the house. And I find out within nine days I um I have well, find out within nine days, um I have a an uncle die so not an uncle i was close to but one who is significant to certain things in the family past
0: and and would this be the mentor
1: no okay no 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 uh he didn't die till a couple of years later
0: okay. hey th- in the 2013 movie mirage man which is a film i quite liked there is a point where the well that's
1: actually 2006 i think the f- movie was from 2006 yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, I didn't realize. I think the book is 2006 and the movie's 2000.
1: No, no, no. The, uh, no, I remember, I distinctly remember doing the movie before the book came out.
0: Oh, okay. So he was making the movie at the same time.
1: Yeah. We shot, I shot my segment in 2006 in Redlands. Yeah. That was back when I was fatter, pasty. Oh, yeah. Long hair. Had long you had big hair. long hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I looked awful in that movie. Good <laughs> lord. How so, embarrassing.
0: So, um, it, so the movie, I, th- I just looked it up on, on uh, the internet. It was released in 2013. And at some point in the film, the filmmaker Mark Pilkington mm-hmm. says this, and I'm paraphrasing. He says something to the effect of, there are these strange characters in this field, like Walter Bosley. I actually loved that line. I thought it was really funny. I knew you at that point, and I I don't know what he was reading into it. But so what's your take on that? What was he implying?
1: Um. <laughs> I'll be diplomatic. Uh you know, ultimately I learned that um those guys they're not fans of the US you know intelligence military you know community. And it's it's more evident in the book than it is in the film. So I when you understand where they're coming from you get that, um, yeah, it, it was just, it was an interesting experience. I was brought into that because Greg Bishop knew them and was involved with the film. And he said, hey, I know this guy, Walter Bosley, and, and you know, because Doty was OSI, and, oh, another OSI guy. And, um, you know, I was very honest with him about my opinion about how UFOs could be advanced uh, human technology, and, you know, I still stand by that. I've written about that idea in stone. And I, and I agree. Yeah. not it doesn't explain all of it by any means, but it explains yeah, yeah. quite a bit of it. Um, so, you know, he said, Hey, you want to, you want to do this thing? Yeah, sure. And, uh, so it's, it's, it, it, that, that experience with that was a mixed bag. I'll leave it at that.
0: I will say that your small portion in that film is pretty benign. I mean, yeah. you don't say much, they don't have you saying much and you're saying stuff that, you know, any thoughtful
1: person could probably say that I would say again, you know, I have no problem with that, but uh, you know, there, there's some things about the book that I, I don't like because they imply some things in the book that just weren't true. And, and uh, the way they juxtapose um, some phrasing, it's, it is in my opinion to be purposely non flattering to a bunch of us that they're interviewing in their film, you know,
0: And here's a question. During your time in the Air Force, did you ever meet Richard Doty?
1: No. Okay. But he was brought up to me as a cautionary tale when I was an agent at my first assignment. And I was looking at some issues that were obliquely associated with the UFO community. And I was told, "Okay, be careful with this, because we had this guy, Doty, who really didn't make the Air Force happy. Kind of embarrassed OSI. I was like, okay, yes, ma'am. That's you know when my commander, my boss told me that. So it's like saluted sharply and made sure I didn't uh, do anything goofy or screwy. But yeah, he was brought up to me as a cautionary tale. I never met him. I finally had a convers one conversation with him a few years ago via. Facebook Messenger um we were direct message and that's the only time I've ever had a conversation with the man I'd love to meet with him and you know chat you know former OSI agent to agent um but uh, I've never never met him other than that Okay
0: fair enough um I'm going to jump around a little bit here Th- Okay throughout your book you reference your mentor mm-hmm. and I could tell you were being cautious and purposely vague and I get that um and can you just Say what you can about who he was and and what role he played in your life.
1: I grew up with um, uh, a strong father figure, a dad that was in my life. My parents didn't get divorced till I was sixteen, and uh, my dad was still in my life. He, he he wasn't one of those that once they got divorced he disappeared. And uh, you know I so I had a good strong father figure. And, um, you know, I, I respond well to that. And my uncle, who is one of my mom's brothers, uh, he and my dad got along real well. So they kind of came from that generation, that same school of thought. So, uh, you know, my attachment to my uncle was just natural. You know, I always had a great relationship with my dad. Quick question. Mm-hmm.
0: Were, were either of these men, your father and your uncle, were either of them in World War II?
1: No. My uncle went into the army, I think, while Korea was going on, but I don't think he went to Korea. He was immediately involved with uh, Cold War stuff. And I know he went behind the Iron Curtain a few times. He never told me about any direct involvement or deployments to Vietnam, but by the time Vietnam rolled around, he was so deep into the spook stuff that he probably did go to Vietnam under those circumstances. And my dad was in the Air Force between um, 1955 and uh, 1958.
0: Okay, I just asked because uh, you and I are, I'm a little bit older than you, and I just, my dad was in World War II. Oh, Okay the shadow of World War II just hung over that generation in a way that is almost impossible to to share with people who are of a certain age Right.
1: Now. But um, no, no, neither my uncle or my dad were. They were a little too young for World War II.
0: So what role did this mentor, your mentor, what role did he play in your life?
1: He, quite frankly, was the one who... Um, guided me through my esoteric path. He's the one who was my guide and mentor through that, while at the same time also being the one who was my guide and advisor, um, who I essentially reported to during my entire national security career. You know, he had me uh, under, I, I think I might even talk about it in the book, where the very first government application I put in to uncle sam was at a nasa installation in alabama at the redstone arsenal Uh, i think it's the marshall space flight center whatever it is um but at redstone and i i had to go to this particular building knock on a particular door on the back side of the building a guy came to the door he knew who i was took the application said thank you you know and i never heard from nasa um any any group like that, you know, a little less than a year later, my mentor tells me to go apply to the FBI. I do that. And while the FBI is doing my background investigation, another agency, which remains unidentified to me to this day, was conducting a background investigation at the same time. And when this was told to the FBI agents doing my background investigation, they were really perplexed. They were concerned. They said, well, who is this? Because we do our own and I had people that were being interviewed during my background, telling me that this other group was had met with them, asking you know the same thing. So someone else at the same time uh, was doing my background. And then through the course of my career, you know, my uncle, I I would have to uh, this is the day before cell phones, I would have to go to a payphone and call him every Friday just to report in. Um, this is when I was with the FBI and when I was with the air force. Now, when I came to the, uh, when it came time to leave the FBI, he told me, go apply to the military branches, tell them exactly what you want, you know, go to the air force, tell them you want intelligence or OSI. OSI wanted me when I went to talk to them. So I was what you call a direct accession. So I went into the uh, air force at my uncle's instruction. And then what I did and who I worked for after the air force was at his instruction. And, um, still reporting to him once a week, you know, independently of things. And, uh, you know, I really, there's things about him that I learned his professional life. There's things about him that are still a mystery to me. I know that he, you know, outranked me, but I don't know exactly what his rank was. Um, he would be able to, he would, I would see him at various installations, if I was being trained, he would show up. He was able to get on any military base. Um, When I was in officer training school, I would um, go off and have private meetings with him. Uh, We'd sit in his pickup truck in the parking lot at the BX. And he'd tell me things about people in my group and what to watch out for. And I'd report to him things. And, you know, he would guide me through the career, but also at the same time, he was the one teaching me things um, like, uh, uh, well, he taught me um, various uh, psychic communication methods. Uh, he was the first one to tell me about remote viewing without calling it remote viewing in 1986. Uh, he taught me necromancy.
0: Wait a minute. Okay. What is necromancy? You got to define that term.
1: The raising of uh, dead spirits to get information from them.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah, he taught me that. I was working for the FBI when he taught me that and and told me to learn how to do it and said there are people expecting you to know how to do this.
0: And did you ever use it in your work uh, with with Uh,
1: on on the job? No, No, here's the interesting thing. Even though he was the guy guiding my career, this was all parallel. All the weird occult stuff, the necromancy, the the strange things, this was parallel. And he was telling me that I would be expected to know how to use this stuff, how to do this. So I, I would go out there. I found a colonial era cemetery on Long Island. I would go out there on, you know, the given certain nights that I was supposed to do it. And I was attempting my communication with a woman who had been buried there in the early 1800s.
0: Oh, have you ever used this in your... Research for your books?
1: No, um, <laughs> it I I became reluctant to do it because it kind of spooked me, and he knew it spooked me. He had told me. He says you got to get over this fear because he explained to me what would happen. I said, "Well, describe to me what happens, you know, when you're doing this." And and some of the stuff he told me it's <laughs> sounded pretty scary, but he says you'll be able to handle it. The more you do it. Um, you know, you'll get better at it, but there are people expecting you know how to do it. And I, I asked him, I said, who, who's expecting me to know how to do it? And he says, you don't need to know that yet. And then later on, he told me a little bit more. And, and I go into that in the spooky mind book for the first time ever publicly, I decided to uh, put what I suspected in the spooky mind book because it's been long enough now. And he's, uh, he, he passed away, um, well, almost four years ago now. Here's the thing. Mike, I think it, I, I, I guess you could say, no, I didn't do it because I didn't need to. I feel like things reach out to me. Um, I think Cora Stanton as, you know, I put quotation marks around that. Cause if you've read the books, you know who I think, who she really was. I, I think she reached out to me without me having to, now I've visited her grave plenty of times, not at night. You know, but I visit there on the anniversary of her death. And, you know, when I take people on tours, Empire of the Wheel tours. But um No, I I'll, I'll be honest with you, I kind of backed off from doing it because you know, it it indeed kind of spooks me.
0: I will leave that as a teaser for people to get the book. We are running a little short on time now. Okay. The question I wanna ask, which I think is appropriate right now. Mm-hmm. And I've asked this of other guests, too. The UFO experience, or let's say the UFO research, is one thing, right? And, mm-hmm. and the occult and magical practices, that's another thing. Right. Yet, when you immerse the, yourself in either of those things, there comes a point when you realize, like the, you know, in the Venn diagram, the two circles, you realize there's a point where these things overlap. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's, there's similar things in both. So looking at this diagram, One circle is the UFO contact experience. One circle is occult or magical practices. Mm -hmm. What's in that place where they overlap? Ah, the answer. (laughs) What is the answer then?
1: (laughs) Ah, that's that's for us to each find out individually, but that's what's there is the answer.
0: So the way I hear you, People who are having UFO contact experiences are some way unwittingly being drawn in to a form of, let's say, deep self-examination, where at the end of that deep examination, there is an answer.
1: In certain UFO experiences, yes, absolutely. That's what's going on. Because remember, I do think ETs are real. I do think they come and visit here. But I think that kind of experience is a different kind of experience than what we're talking about in this other case. And then the, the occult or magical
0: practices, let's just say there's an answer there and it's, and this is something I sense myself and I don't do anything. I have a tarot deck and I pull a card out every once in a while. That's the, that's the extent of my magical practices, but I sense this overlap Mm -hmm. and that there's the flavor and mood of both of these divergent concepts, Mm -hmm. let's say the flavor and mood is similar enough that I recognize that it's similar. And I can't go much beyond that.
1: Right. And remember, I think the answer is in that zone where they overlap. I think clues are outside the overlapped area.
0: Walter, how do people get in touch with you?
1: Oh, I, uh, I'm at, you know, the social media places I'm and you can send me uh, direct messages either at Twitter or Facebook, or you can send a comment to me with your email at at YouTube at my um, Walter Bosley channel at YouTube. Uh, You know, I'm out there. I can be found.
0: And I just I I apologize. I feel like we got really on a roll there and it went a little bit long. Sure. Before we leave, give a little plug for your esoteric Napoleon book, because I find that one really fascinating.
1: Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that one. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte is one of the most lied about people in history. If you want to begin to better understand Napoleon Bonaparte, I recommend my book, The Esoteric Napoleon, because it will uh, it will introduce you to things that you, you probably did not know about him. Um, it certainly... Startled me, and um, so much so, and I found so much good stuff that I'm working on the Esoteric Napoleon Volume Two as we speak.
0: Walter, this has been a delight. I'm so glad we had a chance to spend this a little more than an hour talking together.
1: Absolutely, thank you. I, I appreciate uh, appreciate being. On. Oh, also, I'd like to mention my books can only be found at one place, and that's Print on Demand at Lulu.com. Very good. Not on Amazon. I
0: will put a link to the Lulu site. And I just before I did the interview here, I went on the site and I scrolled and scrolled and scrolled. And you have a lot of stuff there. <laughs> Good. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. My conversation with Walter went a little long, so I'm going to try to be quick. What I do want to do is read one short excerpt from his book. It's a few sentences, but I really think it gives the flavor of both his spooky book, Confessions of a Spooky Mind, and, and also the flavor of the rest of his research. Okay, here goes. The spooky landscape of Empire of the Wheel is fraught with message-bearing ravens, the blood-chilling screams of the midnight owls, the sounds of footsteps on the roof, old cemeteries, the shadow of black magic and very real strangers following me around. It all had that extra dimension that cinema cannot provide. It happened in the real world. Before we leave, I would like to thank Lauren Cutts for his intro and outro music and also Andrea Lisette Villiers on the gong. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.